This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Like many episodes, this week's guest came from a personal passion and fascination, in this case, with historic blends of teas. After my first sip of Oliver Pluff tea, I knew we had to get to the bottom of the story and learn how this Charleston, South Carolina-based company has cornered the market on heritage teas in the United States. It's a story brewed over several thousand years, and one we're serving up piping hot on this week's PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Darren Hartford, who is the owner of Oliver Pluff & Company, a local business based out of Charleston, South Carolina, that creates early American tea, coffee, spice blends for historic gourmet markets and sells both wholesale and online retail. Um, and Darren, you've had a really interesting career. So how do you go from uh, a brigadier general in the United States Air Force to uh, what I call a heritage tea baron. How does how does one make that that jump? Uh, so I had a wonderful Air Force career. I spent 28 years in the Air Force, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, I I told my kids I never worked a day in my life until I bought a small business. Uh, it was uh, a pleasure. I had a chance to fly around the world in large aircraft, C5s, KC-135s, and C-17s. Had a chance to part of some great organizations like the National War College there in, in Washington, D.C., or uh, even deployed, I got a chance to lead a very large wing out in the desert. It was a great career, but every career comes to an end, uh, and my wife let me know that she was ready to retire, and she was going to move to Charleston, and I was welcome to join her. Uh, so <laughs> it was one of those things of... Uh, my kids were entering high school. We knew we, they were going to be leaving the house soon, and I wanted to spend time with them. So, man, I didn't want to be a road warrior. I, so I came down to Charleston, spent a couple of months sitting on the couch, figuring out what's next and what do I want to be when I grow up, uh, and decided to try a small business. So uh, a friend of mine was a business broker. He introduced me to uh, the gentleman who founded Oliver Pluff, who had decided it was time he was tired of being a small business owner and a startup founder, uh, and he needed a break. So uh, I had the opportunity, and I liked the brand, I liked the story, I liked uh, the packaging, and I liked the product. Uh, i not necessarily a, a tea person by nature. When I grew up, like a lot of people, uh, the only tea in the cupboard was probably left over from my great-grandmother who passed away in the 60s. Uh, it wasn't really drank in my house. I've had some bad coffee all around the world uh, on airplanes. Uh, and But I had an appreciation for the story they were trying to tell here. Yeah, and that, that was something I was going to ask you about is, I, I, you know, you find a lot of times people in the military have a real affinity for history just because there's sort of that connection and the continuity and, um, you know, just the, the story of service is... It was was history something always you wanted to do? Was you hoping that the small business was going to be history-based, or did it just sort of appeal to you in the right time at the right moment? Right time, right moment. Um, my last job in the Air Force was running the National War College, having a chance to be the commandant of that. Uh, and that exposed me, re-exposed me to history and to the impact of history on the world around us. 
And T is a story, is one of the original stories of a product that reflected the times around it. Uh, tea is, for the Chinese, they've been drinking tea for four to 5,000 years. Uh, all comes from the same plant, Camellia sinensis. Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's a green tree, a green tea, a black tea, uh, a oolong tea, you know, it all is the same plant. And uh, the Chinese uh, discovered it uh, and were enjoying it. And then the Europeans came along. Uh, and they discovered that the Chinese had this wonderful thing called chai, they called chai uh, and the Dutch were the first to bring it back. And like everything else in that era, uh, when the explorers and uh, as they were discovering there was a bigger world than just Europe, uh, all the Europeans wanted to bring back these exotic products out of the uh, our Far East. And so you had tea showing up about the same time that coffee showed up from uh, Ethiopia and uh, Mocha, uh, what is now Yemen. Uh, and then you also had chocolate making an appearance on the stage. So you had chocolate, tea, and coffee all coming to Europe about the same time. And so that that story of how that came about, that's what appealed to me. And that impact on the world around them. How does that environment impact the world? That's really what got me excited and still keeps me excited about uh, this business. So America's story with tea is something that Oliver Pluff, you know, your company obviously really focuses in on and and kind of markets itself around. It's it's sort of like the like like entertainment around history and and drinking tea and sort of this, you know, this being able to taste the past and there, there's a lot of really cool things that you play with. America's story with tea. So you talk about how the Europeans have it early on. Um, and they're trading with the with the Far East. Um, how early does America's story with tea go back? Is there is there you know is there tea as far as early American or excuse me I should say early European explorers? I presume that native peoples weren't drinking what we would call tea today, although I'm sure they were making types of tea. But what what does America's tea story kind of look like? Uh, so again, recognizing that. In the late 1600s, all of our, you know, most of the people coming to America were from England. And about 1662, uh, England got a new queen, uh, Queen Catherine of, and I cannot pronounce the name of Spain is what I'll say it, but it's Braganza. Um, Braganza. Uh, there we go. Uh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, and so Catherine was an it girl. She was exotic. She came from Spain. Uh, she married King Charles II. Uh, it was uh, what she did and what she brought with her. It was kind of, you know, a Kardashian of a day. You know, people wanted to do what she did. Uh, and so she drank tea. Uh, it had come to Portugal. They were some of the, uh, they were the power brokers of the day along with the Dutch. And so they had this exotic plant. And she drank, drank it. And so everyone else wanted to drink it. And so that's the same era where a lot of uh, the colonists who came to America uh, were coming. So they knew, as it in, the, in that couple of decades after that time, of this great new plant and uh, great new product out there. And so they wanted it. Uh, and they 
they started drinking it early, uh, tea and coffee. Uh, and tea, like it was in uh, Europe, was a gender-neutral drink. While coffee had to be drank in coffee houses where gentlemen of the day would uh, go argue and have politics, tea houses were where women were more welcome to go. And the woman of the house, she would maintain the key to the tea chest uh, with her other keys and uh, implements she used to control the pantry. Uh, and so that's that came to America as just an extension of what was going on in Europe. Uh, and it continued to grow, and it was a very, uh, Euro, you know, Europeans liked it, British liked it, so the people who America, they wanted it too. In fact, uh, some would say that during the 1750s, the most popular tea in America was smuggled tea because the British were taxing tea all along. Uh, I think early 1700s was the first tea tax introduced uh, that they were trying to find ways and so the Dutch would smuggle tea into America and avoid the British uh, and the British East India Company, uh, which, again, that commodity that was desirable and everyone wanted, it started driving politics. Uh, and it was impacting uh, the world uh, at that time. So tea, by the 1770s and the Tea Act, uh, that was just kind of the final straw in this whole story of all that ferment and people in coffee houses and people in tea houses, they were talking. And it was, a, it was the social media of the day. Of that's where discussions were had. That's where uh, theories and wild speculation and rumors were uh, discussed. And it, or the Green Dragon in Boston, it's where they planned their steps in the revolution. It's where the Boston Tea Party planned was in a coffee house, the Green Dragon Tavern, uh, and that. Obviously, you know, we take advantage of that because the company was founded on answering that simple question. What tea was thrown in the harbor during the Boston Tea Party? And what tea was that? Uh, there are five different teas uh, involved that were on the ship, the Eleanor, uh, that were thrown in the harbor. Uh, one was Buhi, the most popular tea in America. So popular, it was the Coke of the day. You know, so if you walked into a tavern and said, I'd like give me a cup of Buhi, they would give you whatever type of tea they had behind uh, the counter. Uh, so you had Buhi, you had Lapsang Souchong, very smoky tea, Tangu, uh, a tea that was made with fine mastery. Uh, and then you also had two green teas, a Singlo and a Yang Hyson, or Hyson tea as it was called back then. So those are the five teas that were part of the Boston Tea Party. Uh, and so those, all those came together uh, and they drove other types of tea as well uh, that were drank along the time. But again, the product was starting to impact the, the political world and the social world around them. So Oliver Pluff, uh, your company, you produce a variety of what you call heritage teas. And we've talked about some of them. And, and I will um, say that not only is uh, Oliver Pluff uh, a sponsor of the podcast, but I'm a drinker of Oliver Pluff tea. So there's... Uh, there's, <laughs> there's some, uh, you know, just letting people know, uh, about, about some of the, uh, the supposed conflicts here, but I, I think that the Buhi is probably my favorite, really, really great tea. But 
how do you define a heritage tea and how do you actually know you're getting the right blend? So we, we, we did an interview recently with somebody who has been trying to figure out how to make and, and sample uh, original yeasts from um, the Egyptian period and trying to get the bread exactly like the Egyptians would have had it. But how do you know you're getting the right blend? Were they written down? And uh, I suppose as, as sort of a follow-up to that, how much international sourcing do you have to do? Has it always been internationally sourced? Has any of it grown here in the U.S.? Um, so for the teas themselves, now the, the tea community would ask that I clarify that when we're talking tea, we're talking Camellia sinensis product. So people refer to a peppermint tea or a chamomile tea uh, by definition, those are tisanes. Those are not teas. Those are herbals. So uh, when I talk tea, I'm talking, it comes from Camellia sinensis. Uh, so with those products, uh, some of it is. You had a lot better records. You know that from a marketing, from all the trade merchant uh, ships that came into town, came into port, there's a record of what was on board. And some of those keys were pure tea. Kongu is still made today. Lapsang Sushong is still made today. Uh, Hyson is still a tea today. Uh, Singlo has a different, some different names today, but uh, the same basic tea that was involved in that it's still produced today. So those single blend pure teas, we try our best to go back to the same province that the historical merchant records would tell us uh, where those tea came from. Buhi uh, is a couple of different stories on Buhi of where it came from, the Wuhi mountain in China, uh, as well as, hey, the Chinese discovered that the Europeans liked this tea uh, and they were going to sell them, you know, what they wanted to a certain extent. Uh, and so they would just start trying to put together all the tea they could. Now there's a myth out there that Buhi tea then just became, all right, we've pumped everything else out of here. What's left on the factory floor? Let's sweep it all in the pile and sell it to them. The price was right. And it was still exotic and still new. And people went, I like that booty tea. And the Chinese were like, okay, there's a waste product that we can sell to someone and they'll drink it. Uh, so that's kind of where, in we when we re try and recreate a blended tea like that, you kind of have to say, where did it come from? Are we in the same region? And what type of teas were also being involved in this product that we can take out? great assumption and a great uh, understanding that, yes, this is as close as we can to a recreation of that original tea. And so you get as close as you can. Do the, what are the blenders? Because on your website, you have these people that actually do blending and sourcing and things like that. What do they actually do? Are they trying to match up or are they more focused on sort of more modern blends? And I, I guess, is there a lot of a lot of tasting involved in that. Is there a uh, do, do, do you do, have you tasted a lot of tea in your time now? <laughs> yes, in the uh, three years I've owned the company, I've tasted a lot of tea. In fact, still do it uh, almost every day uh, from a different standpoint. Uh, 
some of our recipes have been established. You know, as I'm looking at new opportunities and new tea uh, to introduce, it comes back to uh, what is the story? Uh, we just introduced a caravan tea. Now, anyone who drinks tea knows of Russian caravan tea. Uh, Russian caravan tea was the tea that was transported to Russia from China. It was on overland routes. And so that tea, because that route was so cold, the camels that were uh, carrying the tea would sleep close to the fire. And that would add a different smoky flavor to the, a Russian tea. So we introduced a caravan, but anyone who's gone camping knows that the pioneers, they lived by campfire. There was smoke in whatever cabins they built around them. And so you have to imagine, what did their tea taste like? What type of teas would they have available to them uh, to take? Because we know that every pioneer, and you know, if you look at the wagon trains even, they all listed tea as one of those things that they recommended the settlers bring with them. Uh, and so what would that tea taste like after a year of sitting next to a campfire and surrounded by all the smoke? And so we tried to recreate that with our caravan tea. And how do you do that? Do you actually smoke it yourself or is it being smoked at another facility? Uh, we end up uh, using a tea that already has a smoke flavor, a smoke to it, uh, and, and blending that in. So something like a Lapsang Souchong uh, comes smoked because that is how Lapsang Souchong is made. Uh, it is smoked over uh, pine fire and pine tar. Uh, taking that basic ingredient and then saying, well, what other teas were they drinking at the time? Well, let's try and blend something that would be a close approximation and what type of teas were available to these pioneers as they cross the plains uh, to drink. So let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll move from tea to the other things that you work on and, and the big sellers and sort of what's what's ahead because obviously you're introducing different varieties and we'll we'll uh, we'll spill the tea when we come back here on PreserveCast. PreserveCast would like to thank Encore Sustainable Architects for sponsorship of today's episode. Encore is a full-service Maryland architecture firm with experience in historic restoration, adaptive reuse, and sustainability. Their projects span the centuries from saving an 18th century plantation from rising tides the restoration of a 19th century pagoda to lead gold adaptive reuse of a Roaring Twenties theater. Encore passionately and proudly supports the invaluable work of Preservation Maryland and PreserveCast in protecting and interpreting our heritage. PreserveCast would like to thank the University of Colorado College of Architecture and Planning for sponsorship of today's episode a university where you can earn a master's degree in historic preservation that focuses on environmental sustainability, placemaking with historic buildings, and preserving large-scale landscapes. Before we get back to the episode, we're pleased to offer our listeners a 10% off discount on all Oliver Bluff teas, toddies, cacaos, and coffees. Just use the code PRESERVECAST at checkout. That's P R E. S-E-R-V-E-C-A-S-T, PreserveCast, at checkout over at oliverpluff.com. 
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Darren Hartford, who is the owner of Oliver Pluff & Company. We've been talking all about heritage tea and really just the, the central role that tea, tea houses, coffee houses um, played not only in European history, but American history. Um, and so we've covered some interesting ground from uh, the Boston Tea Party to settlers moving across the West um, and the smoky teas they carried with them and the, the tea that got smoked while they carried it. But beyond tea, um, what else are you offering? And I guess maybe like what are the what are the big sellers beyond tea or or and I probably should have even asked too, what is your top selling tea? Uh, Buhi is our top selling tea uh, because it is such a unique blend. Uh, and it does have such a great story to it. Uh, I love the Buhi. Uh, it is my personal favorite. I've been in on a kick of drinking some other teas recently just because I got to keep familiar with all the different um, blends in the house. Uh, but uh, Buhi is the best, by and far, the best seller. Uh, but we also have found that there's a great note from George Washington to his merchant uh, asking for some of the shells of the chocolate beans that Martha so loves uh, to brew. Uh, in her tea in the morning, in her breakfast tea. And so we have a product called cacao. It is the shell of the cacao bean, uh, roasted cacao bean. And it has a flavor and aroma of chocolate, but it's not a hot cocoa. There is no chocolate per se in it. It's just the shell of the bean. So there's no caffeine, no calorie per serving. Uh, so that is uh, a big seller. It is a We've done some blends with it just to have some fun with it. Uh, that is, so our cacao cinnamon is one of the new products we just added. And that's be perhaps my favorite of the various products. And I guess I should ask too, when it comes to some of these, you know, Buhi, which I, I've, I mean, I've never really looked, but I've never really seen it anywhere else. And then cacao shells. Are you one of the few companies out there where you actually can get this? I mean, I can't imagine that that's a big driver in the, uh, you know, in, in some of the big industrial tea companies. Is this, is not only is this niche, but is this really one of the few places to get some of this? Uh, in the packaging that we offer, yes. Uh, so, yes, there are other people who provide cacao. They don't necessarily uh, sell the cacao shell. Some sell what they call cacao and nib. So that'd be the shell, including some pieces of chocolate uh, in it. Uh, so yes, we are one of the few. Uh, but you know, they, everyone everyone has their own uh, view and their own take because their commodity business is uh, is large. Uh, and let's face it, lots of Americans who drink tea drink either an English breakfast or an Earl Grey. Two biggest sellers in America. So be yeah, I mean, and, and obviously you have those, but um, hard to compete with with that market. So it's interesting to kind of compete with these or, or to offer sort of different different types and um, really play up this this heritage component to it. And really is sort of a preservation of the flavor of that period. So beyond, so you've got cacao. What else? Um, you know, because basically the the world of beverages is 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 your potential. So, what else do you guys? What else do you offer? Uh, so, we do have coffee. Uh, we found some of the original uh, recipes, if you will, or we know where coffee was imported from uh, in early America. You either had the Dutch influence, which came from the West Indies, uh, or, or yeah, the West Indies as well as their own Java. Uh, islands of Java, 
as well as mocha, Yemen area, Ethiopia. That was where coffee got inputted. So we know merchants of the day and would sell whatever they had available. So we recreated a colonial blend of coffee, which kind of tries to go back and says, hey, this is what they were drinking back then. Uh, and as well as a blend name for the Green Dragon. But once you get into coffee, you discover lots of people like flavored coffee. And our bourbon vanilla coffee, uh, for people who like uh, flavored coffee, that is one of my biggest sellers. So it's not necessarily a heritage blend, but I I sell what people want. So uh, bourbon vanilla is a huge blend, and it's got me thinking I've got to figure out a way. What would the whiskey rebellion tea taste like? You know, uh, so how do you how do you mix the two of those flavors? Uh, so that that's something I'm kicking around in the back of my head and trying to figure out a way forward on. So that's a big seller. And then spice drinks. Uh, when the British uh, were exploring and they came across India, they all of a sudden opened up a whole new uh, spice uh, route for them. And other different flavors of spices came to them. And the Indians had a drink uh, that included uh, some cinnamon and included other flavors. Uh, and it was kind of called a toddy. That's how the British understood it. And so it came back through the Scottish and the Irish. Uh, it came back to England. And the English soldiers said, hey, here's a great, or English sailors said, hey, here's a great new drink. Uh, a rum with spices in it. Hot toddy. Uh, and so we've recreated some blends of just some flavors that work well. And those spice blends, you buy them, we, we sell the dry spices. You add your your adult beverage of choice uh, and some honey, and put it in some hot water and let it steep, uh, and it becomes a wonderful nightcap. Uh, and that is that is a perennial uh, bestseller. And then wassels. Uh, here we come a wassling. Uh, you know that that uh, song that talks about drinking a hot beverage. Uh, and so whether it was mead or wine uh, or ale or even just cider, uh, a hot apple cider. We do a cider wassail uh, and have some fun with it at Halloween and call it a witch brew. Uh, and so those those products all uh, are some of our best sellers. So where's uh, where's Oliver Pluff headed? I mean, you kind of, you, you mentioned you're always working on different things, um, different flavors, different profiles, whether they be more modern pieces, more heritage blends. Um, are there other historic drinks that, you want to do that you just haven't gotten to yet or um what can people expect what are you what's what's going on in the in the pluff laboratories uh i'm trying to find some sources for some more of the uh, native american uh, beverages uh so yopon we've sell yopon as well yopon uh, comes from the holly uh, bush uh, and in the southeast and southwest the spanish and discovered native americans drinking yopon uh back in the 1500s. And during the Revolutionary War, we assume and we think that as uh, Francis Marion was evading the British, the swamp fox, uh, I'm in South Carolina, as he was evading the British, uh, they couldn't get tea, so they were using whatever plants they could find in the swamps around here to brew. And holly is native to South Carolina. 
and so we assume that Yopan was one of those drinks that uh, Francis Marion drank uh, as he was invading the British. So that has got me thinking, okay, what other drinks are there that tell a different side of the American story? And so those, those are what I'm working on right now, as well as some just different packaging and uh, different ideas of what do people want in an iced tea. We sell uh, several types of iced tea or sun tea uh, or, and just are there different flavor combinations that uh, might not tell an American heritage story, but they tell a t- wonderful flavor profile story. And in terms of sales, you you both, I mean, people can go to oliverbluff.com and they can, and we encourage them to do it. Uh, you guys are fine sponsors of the podcast, but you jump on there and you can, you know, individually buy this. But there's also a lot of people who, who listen, who run historic sites. And you guys have relationships with a lot of, I mean, from Mount Vernon to uh, Monticello, and I'm sure there's dozens of others. Um, but there are opportunities, I guess, for wholesale too. And and I bring that up not really as a sales pitch, but I think it's interesting as a way for historic sites to embrace food. Um, you know, I know that there's there's a chocolate thing out there like that. Um, there's you. Um, so is that is that become like a big part of the business? Is sort of supporting historic sites? Uh, so when we support historic sites. We try and tell their story. We'll love to tell the story of the beverage uh, and how it fits into that site if possible. Uh, but it's really about another avenue to tell their story. And if you get a visitor who loves tea or their great aunt who's watching their cat loves tea, hey, it's a way to share the story of that historic site Uh with a guest who comes to visit and that guest takes it home. And then every time they open that tin or they have that cup of coffee or cup of tea, they go, Hey, don't you remember when we went to visit or they read the back of the label and they remember and they tell the story. Cause that's what preservation is, isn't it? It's keeping the stories alive. I don't get caught up a lot in hey, you have to boil the tea with a tea in the pot and it has to be in a teapot and you have to drink. Uh, scalded tea and have tea leaves in your uh, tea. No, we are, but appreciating and acknowledging that, hey, there's a history behind this product or there's a history of this site uh, that we need to preserve and talk about and tell. That's the important thing. I sell tea bags. Uh, and we bag our own tea, and it's a biodegradable product, and we try and be responsible about that. Tea bags are not American colonies, American Revolution era invention. They're not until the 1900s. But it's convenience, and if it allows someone to get and understand the product, and to hear the story, and to keep the story alive for the next generation, then why wouldn't I sell it? Yeah, I think it's a way of sort of carrying on this, making it easy, making it approachable, but kind of going back to it. It's it's sort of a, a way to entertain yourself and and enjoy and experience whether that whether it be a specific site or just this idea of tea or the Boston Tea Party or perhaps, you know, in the future and Native American teas and all those different types. Um so yeah, I mean, if people want to learn more about you or they they happen to want to buy some tea, where can they do that? Uh, they can do that via oliverpluff.com or we are sold 
uh, in small gourmet and uh, boutique gift stores around the country, uh, and as well as, as you mentioned, the historic sites around uh, Europe and Maryland. So yes, uh, Gettysburg carries our tea, Mount, uh, or I'm sorry, Mount Vernon does carry our tea, Monticello, uh, Montpelier, uh, as well as several other small historic sites in the Washington, D.C. area itself. Uh, and so we have great partnerships with many different uh, national parks and historic sites. As, as I said, small boutique gift shops uh, that it's about getting the story out there. So uh, wherever you find us, oliverplup.com or one of these small businesses that supports your local uh, town, get up here and shop. Well, that's a, a fantastic uh, conversation to be had. It's a, it's a gray and rainy day here as we're recording this. So uh, it's a perfect day for tea. Uh, <laughs> and I'm doing the conversation with, with, with a, a cup of it. So um, before we go, this is the most difficult question, for particularly for someone who, who loves history and who is immersed in it really almost on a daily basis. But what is your favorite historic place or site? Oh, uh... So when I go, there are so many that do it well. Uh, the Colonial Williamsburg or uh, Jamestown, Yorktown, or Vernon, or Mount Vernon, or you know, Monticello, that really do it well, and they have the resources, and they have uh, the story. But even the small ones that tell the story of your hometown, uh, there are, there's a wonderful little shop uh, in New York City. Uh, it's in the oldest building in New York City. It's called Morris Jamel. Uh, and it's not huge. And it's, you know, like everyone else, I wouldn't say they're certainly funded. Uh, but it tells the story of a house that was during the Revolutionary War. Um, both the, Amer the Americans, the British, as well as the Prussians all had their headquarters at one point in time in that house. Uh, those type of places, uh, Drayton Hall down here in Charleston, uh, they take a different slant on history. Instead of restoring it and having uh, a fully beautiful mansion that has been redone at the height of its uh, power and glory, they have restored it to, they try and maintain it to how it was turned over uh, to the uh, foundation back in 1934. So, uh, they haven't, there is no furniture in the house because the house had 200 year history by that point in time. So how do you choose which history to represent? So they represent, they tell the whole story, including the ugliness of uh, slavery. Uh, and they do it in such a way that they don't glorify it. And they're very, they're very honest about it. But they're also honest about the family that lived there and what they went through and what they did. So those type of places that tell the story uniquely and do it in such a way that they want to be approachable and allow folks to learn more. Well, I think that's a perfect ending because uh, in a way, that's kind of what you're doing at Oliver Pluff and it comes through, which is tell that story uniquely and authentically and um, let people experience it. And uh, that's a, a fantastic way to end this. Hoping to have you back. We're, we're thinking about maybe in the future doing a, a live tea tasting, maybe something on Facebook and getting people uh, engaged in this and, and talking about the 
the different flavors and what they're what they're tasting. And so people will have to keep tuned uh, for a special uh, live event sometime in the future. But it's been really fun to have you with us and appreciate you spending your time. Uh, thank you so much, Nick. I really do appreciate it and appreciate what uh, you folks are doing to preserve Maryland's history. So thank you for that. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.